Good morning, diners and um, isolators, I guess. That's it. Uh, you're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig, and we keep going. Um, we're bringing you today uh, another effort at um, dealing with this pandemic. Um, we're talking to Mark Stevens, who we've interviewed before. He's a, a an author, has a new book coming out, actually. But what we're talking to him about today is the effort in NOLA called Feed the Frontline. Let's listen to Mark explain how it works. Okay, Mark, you're being, you know, you, you are now yeah. being recorded. So we're, we're, we're talking to Mark Stevens, who we've talked to before, uh, since uh, we interviewed him about his cookbook. Um, the the issue today, though, is a time-appropriate one called Feed the Frontline NOLA. Uh, NOLA being New Orleans, Louisiana, and one of my most favorite cities in the whole U.S. You contacted us, Mark, about a project that you you are active on, um, and it is Feed the Frontline NOLA. Um, it, to me, sounded like it would be a good model for uh, to talk to our listeners about because it's the kind of thing that's needed in many other cities around the country and around the world. Why don't you give us a, a brief rundown on what exactly Feed the Frontline NOLA does? Thank you so much, and again, thank you for having me on. You're absolutely correct. It is something that can be implemented everywhere, and it's very good. So basically, we are feeding the ICUs, emergency departments, and COVID units of all 15 New Orleans area hospitals with donations um, from the public and from corporations and um, corporate sponsors. And we are using those donations to keep over 40 now local restaurants alive on life support to get through this and sending that good food to the hospital workers and frontline workers. And we are as well employing out-of-work New Orleans musicians to make the deliveries. So we have a sort of three-pronged helpful attack on this pandemic and those who it's affecting most. And we are extremely open resource about helping others do the same as well in other cities. And on our webpage, uh, feedthefrontlinenola.org, uh, we okay. have a do-it-yourself kit where anybody can really implement the same sort of thing that we did. And we have now been so successful that we've started a second initiative called Feed the Second Line, which we're feeding some of the older culture bearers of New Orleans from the second lines and brass bands and Mardi Gras oh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so it's really it's food love. It's all about food and keeping morale high for those doing the most right now. Who got yeah. the idea, Mark? So the idea came from our crew's founder and lead organizer. Our I'm involved, I think, as you guys know, in a Mardi Gras crew called Red Beans and Rice, the crew of Red Beans and Rice. And we parade, it's a walking parade, on Lundi Gras, the Monday before Fat Tuesday, every year for 12, 13 years now. And normally during this time, we have a big fundraiser in New Orleans called Bean Madness. It's sort of a play on March Madness where we host, oh, yeah. 
a citywide red beans and rice competition, and any restaurant can enter, and we do a series of brackets and head-to-head competitions at farmer's markets and uh, stores and things, and uh, it's a blind test, and the public decides who wins, and it goes down until there's final, and we have a big party, and the best red beans is crowned. For obvious reasons, this year, COVID happened, and we weren't able to do that. So our our founder, his name's Devin DeWolf. He's a local resident and really great guy. His wife works at University Hospital in the ER here. She's a doctor. And she was describing to him one day that one of the nurses brought in some cookies and how it boosted the mood of the whole department because, of course, they've had nothing but bad news for so long. And so he put in an order for 60 bucks for some Brazilian treats called brigadeiros, like sweet dessert, to that hospital unit and then asked our crew which has a couple hundred members to donate to sort of keep that going and the crew were very usually all very civic minded and um a tight-knit community donated 500 bucks the first day a thousand bucks the second day 1500 until now it's about a month a month and a half later we are spending um roughly 20 grand a day we are serving 2200 meals a day and to the every single day breakfast, lunch, and dinner to these the, these hospitals, um, just based on the kindness of, of basically strangers, and also all of the administrative tasks such as this is 100% volunteer. So zero administrative fees. We have a really unique skill set because we're a Mardi Gras crew, so we're creative. We make suits and we wear them once, and then we you know toss them in the compost. But also. <laughs> We have lawyers and doctors. We have, you know, foodies like myself and people in the food world. We have organizers. We have all kinds of tools that makes responding to something like this um, incredibly useful. And um, and so that is the answer to your question, Peter, and, and how it got started. And now we're just trying to get it going, spread the love as best we can. Now, when 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 you're not doing this. What do you do in your spare time, Mark? You, we might we might as well give you the opportunity to blow your own horn just a little bit more. Well, as you know, I've, I've written, I was on here for the first cookbook and I've written a second one that came out late last year called The World's Softest Cookbook. So I, I do a lot of traveling. Both it's are called The World's What? The World Sauces Cookbook. What's that? That's my well, second have... book. It's all, yeah, it's all about world sauces. I actually wasn't able to come on your show this time, which is a tragedy, but yeah, um, was I will that? make sure you guys <laughs> I don't know. I think I sent you an email, but that's all right. Um, I'll make sure you guys get a copy. So that I travel and cook a lot. And so this book was all about world sauces. So not like the French sauces and their derivatives, but things like tomb, the garlic sauce, and Koresh Fessin so Jr. I'd, I'd love to see that book and talk to you about it. Well, so no, can no, you get no. us a, a copy? I absolutely yeah, you just will. Said he would. It's, a great, it's a great right. quarantine book because in the back of the book, Besides the sauces, there's a bunch of really simple recipes for things like mussels and bell peppers and chicken and steak and things that you can pair with the sauces and this pairing suggestion. So um, that was the major part of last year for me. And then I'm also a filmmaker. I'm an assistant director in the Director's Guild. I make movies and and television shows when I'm not cooking. Um, but right now I'm just hanging out in my house and I've made some bacon and um, – I had bacon for lunch too. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I, I cured I it. I had with bacon some and, three, and three fried eggs. 
Uh, Mark, Three fried eggs, and you're making me hungry now, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, um, uh, New Orleans got hit really badly um, because it was open for Mardi Gras. Is that the? Okay, I, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask another question. There's an, there's another party involved here, some somewhere or other, which is the people who own the restaurants where the food is cooked by the volunteer chefs for the for the people at the hospitals, right? So, so they're correct. You know, you know, in order for their chef to be represented in this wonderful community effort, the the owner of the restaurant has to let them do that. Correct. Yes. So we, correct. Yes. So we work with forty different restaurants, and what we ask them to do is not. There's sort of two ways to go about supplying the restaurants with food. There's the way that is to say, make the cheapest thing that you can, like a big pot of red beans or something, and we'll feed them that. But that's not the goal that we're trying to achieve. We ask the restaurants to make their good food, the food that they would normally make. And it's New Orleans restaurants, so it's really good food. And we say to them, what is the price point that basically keeps you guys going? that pays the bills and keeps oh, you guys running. Got it, got it. So they're getting compensation correct. For, what, for what they're okay. doing. Exactly. And it's, they're not rolling in dough, no pun intended. But what it does no. is it keeps them on life support for as long as possible because this may go on for a long time. And so yeah, by making the food that they normally make, and being paid for it, paid an amount that can keep them going, not only are they keeping themselves in open, but they're keeping their supply chain intact. They're keeping their producers fed. So, we're, so the, the money just doesn't go to the restaurant. It goes to buying the ingredients so that when this is over, they can come back that much faster. They don't have to reestablish relationships. They don't have to rehire employees you know, or all of them, uh, let's say, and they can – be back and making their beautiful food and having people in their restaurants as quick as possible. So it's really keeping the ecosystem intact because what we want to achieve is preserving New Orleans culture, not just making food. Now, what, what, what's the feeling in Louisiana and New Orleans as to when there might be a possibility that you would start thinking about reopening? Of, of course, I'm not a health professional, nor um, sure, a, a sure, no. Public I, I just want, person. I just wondered if the, just wondered if there'd been any statements about that from the mayor or we, from the governor. Yeah, our governor has a press conference soon, and hopefully, we'll find out more. But we're pretty much with the rest of the country in terms of waiting to hear more. Obviously, right. New Orleans was impacted um, sufficiently. With, yeah, um, yeah. you know, we had Mardi Gras in in February. And this sounds like there was cases uh, in that time, even though our government had maybe not recognized those yet. Yeah, the mayor, but I don't it, know, she seemed to be on the fence about it. And, I mean, she she was going to go ahead and, and open Mardi Gras, and then afterwards she said that they, she got wrong information and shouldn't have. Yes, well, in her defense, she's not a perfect mayor and no perfect, no government official is, and everyone's just trying to do the best they can. But at that time, the feeling here was that 
the cases in the United States were limited. It's really easy to, I think, now look back and a lot of us sort of look back and say, but the same could have been said for the Super Bowl, you know, if the 49ers had won and there was a big party in San Francisco or, you know, there's so many things we can look back. Um, It seems to have been over the hump now because of social distancing and closing down of events and restaurants and groupings. And so from the people I talked to that are medical professionals in New Orleans, it sounds like some of the wings are opening back up for some of the other medical care necessities that are needing to happen and perhaps, but I think it's going to be a while and more social distancing to prevent a second outbreak. I think that's sort of what everybody has on their mind. But again, just very clear, I'm not a medical professional, so that's all conjecture. But in the, but in the, in the meantime, uh, these people who are work, working so diligently to, to deal with the medical aspects of the problem, they're, they're getting good food and I'm sure it puts a smile on their face. That's correct. So we are doing our best with what we can. Not all of us work in the emergency room or work on the front lines or even work in a grocery store, but that doesn't mean that we can't use our skills, the tools that we have to help in some way. And that's sort of been the theme of our little campaign is what small thing can you do in your spare time while you're home to help a little bit, whether that's giving some canned food to the local food bank or whether it's plugging something on social media that you find somebody giving back um, and just getting the word out about that. If everybody's doing something small, that can be something much bigger. Well, and so you're the only of, ones mm, doing this project. I mean, are there a number of crews involved in other projects like this, or is, is yours unique? Well, ours is, in, you, ours is unique in terms of the musician's aspect of it and trying to give some of the um, donations to hire them at the rate that they might otherwise play because they are not obviously doing their services right now. Yeah. And that to us is very important in New Orleans to keep musicians above water because it's such an important part of our culture. But I am pleased to say that there are several Feed the Front Lines that have blossomed around the country. A quick Google search can just show you. We've uh, partnered with Frontline Foods, which is a company in San Francisco that has sort of exported to some other cities this model of oh, good. keeping restaurants open. And we've both learned from them and given our knowledge to how – we scaled up so fastly to them so that they can incorporate it in other places. And I know LA's got a big one, and I think Boston's got a big one too. Um, a, a quick Google search would, would certainly tell you. But it's sort of nice to see that the, the hashtag or the line, Feed the Front Line, has caught on because it allows people to really know what it is. And literally anybody can do it in their community with just some donations, even if it's just a lunch, sending it to the to the ER. The biggest thing for us is working with the hospital to figure out how they want the food delivered because they don't want just somebody dropping food off at their doorstep not knowing where it's come from. Oh, they sure. want no, to know no, understand. who made I... it and who's going to receive it, who's going to drop it off. So we actually pair drivers with the hospital so it's the same person with the same contact each time. Oh, that's a great idea, too. I guess there are all these little ins and outs that you really have to take 
um, things under control, huh? No, you, you, Correct. you said when you you said Mark when you started out day day one there were five thousand dollars in donations day two ten day three fifteen has has the has the direction still continued to go up? Not in small donations, although that's steady. Um, but what has happened is corporate donations have really helped us table so that we can stay a week ahead or so. And so that, as you can see, if one goes to our website, which again is feedthefrontlinenola.org, is giving the corporation an opportunity to buy lunch, basically for the city of New Orleans, or buy breakfast, or buy a meal for a hospital. And if, if done so, then they get a card, that hospital gets a card with, say, Fidelity Bank, which was a sponsor of ours. This lunch donated by Fidelity Bank, you know, keep up the good work. Uh, we've had a couple local New Orleans athletes like Cam Jordan and DJ Augustin, who's an NBA player, um, also do donations. We've had Zatarin, Tabasco, some local Louisiana restaurants get involved. So between the two, between donations and between uh, corporate sponsorships, we've been able to keep it, and we're basically just going to keep it going as long as we can, <laughs> as long as COVID yeah. is happening. We're going to do yeah, that. I'm, I'm looking on the, uh, under the Feed the Frontline hashtag, and we've got um, a number of cities involved in it. Um, you, you wonder why there's not some sort of national creation of it. You know, I mean, there, there's Houston, there's um, Nashville, uh, New Orleans, of course, um, places even I never even heard of. But it, it I wonder what would be a natural, uh, broad-based, um, national um, sponsor organization. Yeah, I don't know how that would look. I mean, everyone is taking care of their own cities, of course. We are yeah. happily open source, so if anybody contacts us, we're happy to give information on how we did it. And there's a, even a do-it-yourself toolkit on our website, as I mentioned, that sort of give some of the first pitfalls, let's say, that we discovered that oh, that's could great. save someone else some work. <laughs> but uh, it, it, for us, it's, the story isn't just about the food and the frontline workers. It's also about our local restaurants and making sure Oh, that I can't imagine food. being in New Orleans without being able to go to one of your restaurants. <laughs> I can't right? We, don't, we, we definitely don't want a corporatization and this is a country issue, but corporations mostly will be able to survive this, hopefully. But it's the little guys, the mom and pops, and the, you better believe the it. chef owner restaurants that I know you guys love so much that we really yeah. need to look out for. So, you know, I know the corporate corporate restaurants are getting some national funds, which is great for them, and we're trying to do our part to make sure that the the smaller restaurants get looked after too. Yeah, well, a lot of the big ones have given had to give back the money. I thought that was pretty good. Well, yeah, that Mark, was that was good of them. Hopefully, that gets rerouted. Yeah, Mark. You, to, to, Mark, you do a great thing. Words, you you are you are doing the Lord's work, and you and you are to be congratulated, admired, all of, all of the above, and well, may may this continue to flourish. 
In the Thank time you of so much. I, I do need to say it's a, it's a tea, it's a big team effort. It really is the sure. crew of Red Beans in New Orleans, and um, I'm just a small part of it. And I really appreciate you guys giving me a voice to get the word out. I'm well, happy to help. You know, well, and, and look forward to getting a copy of your book and talking to you again I'm, about that. I'm sending right now. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Uh, yeah, and so we'll talk to you soon then. Thank you so much, Ann, Peter. Really. Now don't don't go away, because we'll be right back. Ann, Ann was I wanted to get Ann to do the break, but she didn't want to do it today. So you're going to put up with me, and that's okay because we'll be right back anyway. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Next stop, we're going to be talking about someplace where I wouldn't mind... uh, sheltering. Uh, it's in the Hamptons, which I'm very fond of. Uh, talking to Hillary Davis and Stacy Dermont, who wrote a book, which is right appropriate at the time, called The Hamptons Kitchen. Listeners, I can't tell you how happy I am to have this book. <laughs> oh, yay! The Hamptons Kitchen. I'm happy you're happy. Well, you know, I, I spent my many, many <laughs> um, summers hanging out uh-huh. in, in uh, East Hampton. Okay. And one of the things we did, you know, it's you know, in my salad days or whatever you call those, is uh-huh. um, we all got together and went to the house. And all plopped right. down. Sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, people came and went. But mainly we cooked these elaborate yeah. foods. <laughs> what was your favorite thing to cook out here? Well, I mean, I, when I... Probably bluefish. Because I, I know um, Gail, and when I was reading her introduction, I almost fell off my chair because I, <laughs> I had the same experience with this uh, Jagunda lobster that we uh-huh. walked around the floor. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and then oh. it became a pet. <laughs> it was really awful. Oh. I can't for the life of me remember. I think we finally ate it, but I'm not sure. The thing, yeah. the, the thing I remember is one day, one, at least one day, we, we got in the mud and picked mussels. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. We used a mussel all the took, time. T- took a long time to get enough mussels to feed a group sure. of six people. Oh, well, the But the real hang-up was that Aviva, my best friend Aviva, uh, went through, and any of them that she thought were too small, she put in a separate bucket. We'd put them back. <laughs> oh, oh boy! Gosh. But anyhow, we had much fun, and I'm 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 really glad that uh, that you're there now and cooking from there, which is what we always love to do. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, now I, we're we're also jealous, by the way, because, <laughs> because because in those years we were out there, nobody nobody was producing any grapes, <laughs> and certainly not any right. wine. Oh, right, we didn't it's have the opposite any now. Wine there. Now, yeah. now, now it's called uh, how how many different colors can I make? So um, the, the book 
listeners, by the way, in case we haven't said it, is the Hamptons Kitchen. Seasonable yeah. recipes pairing land and sea, and also um, wines with each course, which Stacy uh, did with each recipe. Um, and the photography, um, it's Barbara Lassen. It's wonderful photography. Yeah, we're and, very happy yeah, for her. And your friend Gail Green. Um, yeah. She did the uh, the foreword, the introduction foreword. Uh-huh. And yeah. And it took me back to the last time that we interviewed Hillary. Um, uh-huh. I, uh, Gail did something about her tie for breakfast habit. At, oh, yeah. About the same time that I had just finished interviewing you. And uh-huh. she was just arriving at, uh-huh. at your house. And... Um, and we talked about pie for breakfast, and it turns out a friend of mine opened a restaurant called Pie for Breakfast. So we really? Have, yes. Wow. <laughs> we have a, a lot of intertanglements here. But yeah. let's, let's go back to um, you two are, are best buds, um, and, but you're very different. And, yeah. and, and in the, I think it was Hillary's introduction, um, you, you talked about how you were separate. Um, Hillary Davis and Stacy Dermont, who we're talking to, and uh, Hillary points out that she is one type of crook and Stacy is another <laughs> type altogether. Tell us what you mean. Hillary, you want to do that one? Um, well, hi. <laughs> um, I, you know, Stacy and I, I think that's how we even really got attracted to each other because. You know, I had so much to learn from Stacy, and you know, hopefully, she enjoyed my company too with food and the way I looked at it, our different perspectives. But we, you know, we came up with this idea uh, for the book because the Hamptons, I think, is so local, so farm oriented, so agricultural, and I wasn't. You know, I was like the people that come in. You know, in the summer or come here to live. We came from other parts of the world, other lives. I'd written a lot of French, four French cookbooks. And Stacy knew everything about farming. She knew, the first time Stacy came to dinner, I was cooking for her and she disappeared. And she'd gone into the backyard and she came back in with things we could eat that she had foraged. And I fell in love with her. I mean, this is someone who, this is someone who has a deep Mother Earth understanding of what it means to be close to the Earth and connect with it and find joy in it. So our cookbook, we thought would be good because it would bring my style of cooking and my knowledge and Stacy's deep knowledge and style of cooking, which is very Americana, New England, uh, farm-driven. So I think that makes sort of an ultimate cookbook when you look at a, an area, any area in the country, really. I mean, you get, we're all a melting pot, and to, to uh, present the two sides we thought would be really good. Well, but now, Hillary, you spent a lot of time in France and wrote right. for French cookbooks, so you have uh, that in your background, the classic French uh, training and um, their interests or style. And, um, and Stacy, you know what farms are all about, farming is all about, and products. Yeah, I speak farmer. 
You speak German. <laughs> yeah, you also speak. You. you also speak Wino. What's that? I said you also speak Wino. Wine notes. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. No, I just said oh, W I N O. Why? Why no? Is yeah. how I pronounced it. Could uh, work if you can get it. It's, 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 <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a fabulous idea, and and so, there must have been something about the decision to figure out what to pair with every one of a hundred dishes. Uh, and still, so, and still, so, so accepted immediately. <laughs> and still have a liver left when you were done. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, it's just a pairing. A pairing isn't necessarily a full pour, but, you know, we do invite our readers to fully enjoy themselves when they uh, execute these dishes and these pairings. And we stress that, you know, pairings, in my mind, either they complement the food or they contrast to the food, and there are no wrong answers when it comes to pairing local wine and food. No, and the, and the, I'm with you. The amazing thing is <laughs> just exactly how much... Wine is now produced in uh-huh. the in the uh, I guess it's mostly in the eastern half of Long Island. Yeah, um, I don't know what it is in gallons per year, but there are over sixty active wineries now. And and twenty years, thirty or forty years ago, when we're talking about being a, there probably weren't any. Uh, yeah, wow. I think the oldest is forty-two years old. Right, so 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 it's it's after we stop going. Okay. I see. <laughs> we, 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 we had to satisfy ourselves with buying big jugs of Gallo Hardy Burgundy. Well, that's oh. one way to satisfy. Sure. Oh, 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 who, who was who was the guy who made no, no wine before its time? Paul, Paul, something yeah, or other. If we were, if we were I feeling, I remember it, the commercial. If, if we were, well, we were, if we were feeling, me. if we were feeling extremely plush, it would be a little hard to go out to Long Island when we were living in Australia. We did that. Now you have stocking the Hamptons pantry. And I think that is very interesting because, um, again, oh, there's more produced there now on oh, one yeah. hand. Um, and, uh, of course, there are things that that you can't get there that you allow in your recipes when you need to. Sure. But I never knew that there was an Amagansett salt. <laughs> yeah, that's about 10 years old, I'd say. Yeah, I never knew about that one. And um, yeah. Yeah, and I have to put in a call out to Stacy. Um, my family pie crust recipe calls for Crisco. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> my if mother would never my use anything. Saw about Crisco, she gave up lard. Well, and then Peter's mother, I mean, that's all they used in England. The first time I was at no, produce of st- pie crust without any uh, Crisco, I had no idea what to do. She, 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 <laughs> right. used, she used to make pies with suet crust as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sure. And that, and that is unusual. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yummy. I can still remember my mother's meat and potato pie with a with a suet sure. crust. Yeah. Yeah. Not 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 good for the cholesterol, but you were also um, ecologically uh, conscious, and you have a section on nothing goes to waste, and you try to point out how to use all the trimmings from everything, and and if we you're do. not going to, yeah, and if you're not going to use them, you're going to compost them. So you right, we have a recipe for food. compost. And you have a recipe for compost, <laughs> yeah. right? What kind and we of, specifically what? tell people, don't eat the compost. <laughs> Just to be clear. Now, what, now what kind of glass do you use for the compost? No, no. <laughs> 
We also have a, a recipe for compost tea, and we tell you not to drink it. Definitely not. Oh, wow. It's ugly stuff. I mean, I remember that. You, you've organized this into uh, uh, um, seasons. Yes. And, um, and, of course, there are seasons that, I mean, if you live there full time, you're experiencing seasons that, that I, as a summer person, never right. experienced. Right. But if you pack up our little Hampton's Kitchen cookbook and take it home with you wherever you live, you can use those other seasons, I promise. Yeah, I noticed you mentioned that, that if you didn't uh, have a house in the Hamptons, you could still make this stuff. In oh, absolutely. Yeah, the book is regional to the Northeast, but, you know, these recipes are pretty universal. And I would point out... Uh, we had a lot of fun. We don't do four seasons. We do five seasons because low summer and high summer are so very oh, right. different yes, in exactly. terms of what's local. Yeah. You don't have as many um, lobsters as you used to have in that part of the country. We sure don't. You know, there are very few lobsters around Montauk anymore because the waters are getting warmer with global warming. The lobsters are going north. But, you know, I read the price of lobster has sunk, I mean, to a dismal mm-hmm. level, but it's never reflected in any place else, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. We get, a, um, you know, America gets a lot of lobsters from Canada now. Yeah, because of the temperature, I guess, of the water, too. Yeah. Yeah. But then there are all these wonderful allusions to um, things that I associate always with. Um, yeah. Long Island, like the uh, duckling, yeah. and potatoes. Tell us about potatoes. So, I'm sorry, the what? Potatoes. Potatoes. Oh, potatoes. We have lots of potato recipes. Um, Hillary has that mashed potato topped flatbread. Right. And she lives right in potato country, especially in Bridgehampton. So there's a section that's specifically known for potatoes. Yeah, the Bridgehampton loam is a very wonderful soil that okay, they enjoy. It. Okay. Um, it's not limited to Bridgehampton, but there's a lot of potato farms still in Bridgehampton, where where Hillary lives. Now, do they? Well, s- it goes back to the original Native Americans who uh, cultivated sure. potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Sagaponic is named for the native ground nut, which is related to the potato. Now, do they still catch uh, swordfish off Montauk? Yeah, Hillary. Yes. Mm-hmm. They do. Yes, and tuna and, and, old, and flute. No, Montauk teaming with uh, games. So that's that's sort of the, the epicenter of, of thing here. But, you know, you, you drive anywhere in the Hamptons, and people are throwing wines over bridge. So it's pretty much like anywhere in America. If you can get a, a you know, fly, a uh, fishing rod and you have a bridge, you can go fishing and then... Um, but it's big here, yes. People love to go fishing here. You have to go a little it's further out. the joy of, huh? You have to little go a little further out to catch swordfish, I guess, all right? Yes. Yes. Here's the Absolutely. deal. Here's something you might not have tried. And of all, of all things, it's a product of my Whole Foods fish mart merchant. And it's the belly part of the sword, and it is absolute, oh. it is absolutely sensationally really gorgeous. Oh, wow. I'm going to try that. And a lot of although it's hard to order now, Amazon. I think food deliveries are suspended right now. But oh, sure, sure, sure. Concentrated on medical supplies and whatnot. Well, you, no, you, I mean you might you might be uh, able you might be able to get a, a fish merchant other than Whole Foods to, to provision it for you. I mean, mm-hmm. right? I, I think I think originally originally I got it to try, and the guy said try this before I throw it out. Hmm. And it's, wow. just, it's just so absolutely wow. incredible. I love learning new stuff. That's great. So now what are some of your re- recipes, your favorite recipes in here 
Um, I liked your, you have little stories that go with them too. And I mm-hmm. like that Madonna, blueberry Madonna pie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my blueberry Madonna. She was, she made such an impression on me. And um, I wasn't even here in the Hamptons. I was up in New Hampshire, way up on a mountain, picking wild blueberries. And as I came to the top of the mountain, statuesque, beautiful woman with her sorry, you know, wafting in the wind and purples and yellows. And she had a basket of blueberries and a little child she's holding their hand and help talking to her and um i said finally what what are you going to do with she had so many and she said in a beautiful british accent she said well of course i'm going to make blueberry curd pie (laughs) and so i had to get a recipe she talked me through it and when i came back to long island the next day I, i started to make it and it's just it's a lovely way to have you know, fresh blueberries. And did, she, did she give you the blueberries? Or? Oh no! Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking no, that. I was thinking own. that would be a that would be a wonderful part of the story if she gave you some. Oh no! Because I think she had her little child picking most of them. So. <laughs> there you go. No. Oh so no! Um, the uh, has it has the uh, the the people and the, the crowds of people have they changed over the years now? I mean, instead of just summer people, you, you used to have a lot of celebrities well, living there too. Well, I, yeah, I, I ran into Matt Lauer in the grocery store this morning. <laughs> well, lucky you. Um, we ha- <laughs> he spoke, uh, he still has the house. She didn't yeah. get the house. <laughs> he has a house just outside Sag Harbor. I said she didn't get the house. His ex-wife. Well, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. It, it was a maybe. very contentious divorce. You maybe didn't follow it. Um, and, yeah, and they were squabbling and fighting over property. And uh, yeah. I didn't know who was going no, to get No, it's not house. about food. We don't really pay attention to celebrity news. <laughs> good, good. Very, very, very sensible. But, you see, um, many, many New Yorkers are out here now. They've opened their, their so-called country houses two months early because of the... Uh, COVID-19 situation, they are actually Hamptonites already, and, you know, and they brought their kids, and so it's almost like summer here. We just did have a touch of snow this morning. Oh, did you really? <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, we what? did. Just a, just a very few flakes in Sag Harbor. You better, you better grab yourself a tester. Are all your restaurants uh, closed, too? All the restaurants are closed. Some are doing takeout. <laughs> I'd, I'd like your uh, your photos. Uh, there's Hillary, all in white and blonde. And then there's Stacy, who's like uh, we have Snow White, we've got what is it, Rose Red? <laughs> you know the story? Stacy is like the Julia Child of the Hamptons. You know, she has that wonderful, wonderful look. She tells great stories. She's a good cook. And she gets everyone excited about cooking and food. So... I always call and I'll it Julia But you know, are you having trouble with food down there? I mean, not our yet, supermarkets but, are. Yeah, yeah, not yet. But um, we, we got, I can see this dragging quite a we, long time. We got we got an order of of meat from a local wholesale butcher. That was $384. Oh, <laughs> oh. I am. I, 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 I bought 20 pounds of chicken thighs <laughs> and put them in the freezer just in case. Anyway. Yeah, I see. So I see a, a, almost a hopeful or interesting 
um, thing happening here. I mean, we get so used to, especially the Hamptons, get so used to an abundance of food, right. a wealth, a wealth of food, and we take it for granted. Or I think we don't do it on purpose, but we take it for granted. And I think a good thing that's coming out of this could be, you know, because this morning I spent two hours looking for milk and egg. I think to now realize that how blessed we are to have had, and we will have again, abundance of beautiful food, but to not take it for granted again, you know, really treasure it. And I think the other thing that might come out that's good is everyone's at home now, so they have to cook. And these are a lot of people that, you know, maybe don't cook, they want to go out and Um, And I think it's really lovely that there's time. You're forced not to work. You're forced not to run around to everything and be social. And you're home. And I think people, I've been talking to people, and this woman said, I'm going to learn how to make naan, you know, because I'm I'm learning how to make curry tonight. So I think there's going to be some nice things that come out of this, and we might be better for it. I hate to say that after so much suffering. Mm-hmm. But there is a silver lining. Food yeah. brings people together, and food always seems to heal. So well, that's a good, uplifting thought. Yeah, assure, assure me that the wineries are open. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know how that's key. Are they, are they open, Stacey? My state store is The wineries, no. With the Pennsylvania. delivering, certainly you can order. Great. Well, it's it's so it's so nice. I, I need to mention one thing before we close off, and that is, um, listeners, you need to check out this cookbook. If for no other reason, then you probably will never ever again see a recipe for chocolate sauerkraut layer cake with <laughs> sea salt caramel glaze. Well, you only need the one recipe. <laughs> Oh, it's, so it's, good. it's a fun cookbook and it brought back many happy memories to us uh, and and uh, a, a good luck with it and uh, stay you. safe thank you thank you and come visit when <laughs> nobody's going anywhere we haven't been anywhere yeah. so anyhow we will see the other side of this I'm sure so Hillary yeah, Davis and Stacy Dermont the book is The Hamptons Kitchen and you can dream listeners and you can cook some of these recipes. Thank you. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net Okay, I'm cl- closing out today's program. If if the Hamptons is an escape for New Yorkers, the Berkshires or Berkshires, as I would pronounce it, are, 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 are a getaway from, from Bostonians and <laughs> Connecticutians, and even some people from New York State. And uh, it the, sounds like, it sounds heavenly. Yeah, I mean, Eliza. Eliza and, and Elisa, Elisa, Elisa Spungen, and, Spungen and Bildner and Robert, Rob Bildner, and, and it's the Berkshires Farm Table Cookbook. And if they don't persuade you to settle in the Berkshires, I'll be very surprised. So here they are.
Okay, now, now, now you're being recorded for posterity. We're welcoming um, Elisa and uh, Robert uh, Bildner to the, on the menu. Um, and this book is so good, the Berkshire's Farm Table Cookbook, that I'm ready to pack up and move there. Or at least I was, and then I, I jumped forward and thought about winter. <laughs> We welcome you. And we have plenty of room. <laughs> it's a wonderful kitchen. Well, uh, I, I must say you seem to have an idyllic life. and seem to have had, although you both are, I mean, I have to mention, you both are overachievers. <laughs> oh, listen, I think that's true of, well, true of everybody. Uh, we've, enjoyed, we've enjoyed our lives. Uh-huh. We, are, we are foodies through and through, multi- multiple generations of, of food. Now, folks. did you actually grow up in this region and the... Perhaps one of you could tell us a little bit more about what it's yeah, like. about the origin of the, uh, of the uh, story. Please. Sure. So um, we have had a home in the Berkshires for about 35 years. We are what I would call serious part-time residents um, in that we, we are here every holiday. We're here weekends. We're here nonstop. Uh, we raised we your kids our, there, essentially. We raised I mean. our children in New Jersey, although if you ask our children where they're from, they will tell you that they are from the Berkshires, and we all consider it our spiritual home. And yeah. one of the things that um, has grown on us as we've been here for the 35 years that we've been here is a re- an appreciation not only of the culture of the area for which the Berkshires is known, um, but for the fact that there's uh, off on roads that you don't see, etc., many, many small farms. And actually through our son, Rafi, who is our youngest of four uh, children, who's just turned 27, we learned a lot about farming um, and about the struggle of small family farms or small farms uh, to make it. Uh, not only here, this is a problem not just in this area, but a- across the country. Oh, it, it's terrible. And um, one of the things that you point out in your book that I think is really important is people, city folk, I'll call them, yeah. um, have no idea how hard it is on a farm. I, mean, I spent my summers on a dairy farm in Ohio, and I know the amount of work involved with it. Yeah, and, um, yeah our book has, I, I think there's several aspects of the book. Uh, first and foremost, it's a, of course, it's a cookbook with 125 recipes and photography that I did of the farm. Oh, yeah, by the way, congratulations on your photography. You've got a lot of talent there. I said, listeners, they are are overachiever, or let's say they're (laughs) super (laughs) achievers. Thank you. Yeah, we put a lot of many years uh, into the photographs, but it's really also the story of not only Berkshire farmers, but even beyond about, as you point out, um, the challenges that uh, small farmers particularly have uh, it's a really hard, hard life, and besides the all the expenses they have to go through and the difficulty of finding uh, labor to help them and the challenges of climate change. And it's not getting any easier. It's the next not, thing is not, you, not, you, you talk about one of the things I've been worried about with the current um, crisis um, is uh, the risk, I mean, I was beginning to notice that some younger farmers or some younger people were taking up farming, and and I felt, you know, this was so, I mean, it was so uplifting to think that there'd be a future with that, so we wouldn't have just people dying off who'd been farming their whole lives, and now they're being hit 
in uh, inconceivably difficult ways by um, yes, the crisis yes. that we're going through, the market, uh, the restrictions, um, the uh, the climate change, everything is being thrown at them. So as, so as we're sitting here in the Berkshires right now, it's April, what, uh, 27th, and the it was snowing all last night and all this morning. This is literally almost May, and it's snowing. And it's this kind of, so this is a climate change issue um, that, you know, for a farmer to predict when to plant, uh, when to, you know, do all the things that make up his or her schedule, uh, it's extremely difficult because it's it's a different it's a different ball game. And you mentioned younger farmers, and one of the concerns, of course, is that uh, farming is generally an older person's um, small family farms, an older person's occupation. I think the average age of farmers in this country is 59, 60, is what I've heard. And while we do see and we interview young farmers who've come into the area, um, it's not as if there's a, a rush um, to, to become a farmer. Again, for all the reasons that Rob, Rob explained. And I will just go back to when you asked um, the origin uh, of, of how we got here and what we did. So our son, who I'd mentioned um, briefly a, a little while ago, who sort of turned us on to farming, started farming our property in the Berkshires, literally a, a half-acre farm, which you'd call probably a market farm or whatever. He did that for two summers in high school because he had uh, learned how to farm um, during a program he took in high school, and we watched him kill himself, literally. And he's not paying for the land. He's paying for everything else, all the other And still couldn't make it. I mean, and it was hard making it. Yep. He, we, he actually borrowed money from us, came up with a business plan, and at the end of two years, literally had paid some of the money back. Um, but realized, we all realized how difficult it was. And that made us look at the larger picture. And he actually had spent time working with farmers, trying to help them market their products, and, and realized, again, some of the difficulties of being a small family farm. And it's also, by the way, because I've done a, a bit of work with or, trying to organize farmers into with a Pence Corner Farm Alliance in, in southwestern Pennsylvania, trying to well organize them so that they took advantage of marketing opportunities and, and uh, right. um, CSA and so on. And it's very difficult getting them organized. <laughs> it is, um, of course, doing a book about farmers uh, over the last four plus years uh, had many challenges, including even, you know, getting our, our farmers, and we really adore them and that we really admire them, but getting them to even, you know, return a phone call because they I know. are so darn busy. <laughs> they really are. But I do want to say that, um, you know, on the positive side during this crisis, um, we have been struck by the resilience of, of our farmers. We We actually write about 42 farmers and, and, and also farm table chefs. And I would say that, in, and this is very up-to-date, virtually all of them are, are, are finding ways to do business in this crisis. Exactly. Whether it's, you know, pickups at their farm or their CSAs are, of course, um, getting going, uh, takeouts for the farm table restaurants, um, there's a wonderful They're changing coaching. markets because a lot of them grew for restaurants and then totally. restaurants yeah, are closed. Yes. yes, they pivot from the food service side, and now they're dealing directly with the, with, with the customer. And actually, I heard your show, um, this past show, you interviewed the gentleman, I think, who 
does um, uh, produce, who's a, a vegetable farmer, and now yes, he's selling yes. directly. Oh, yeah. Doc, we're yeah. getting an order from him today, we think. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but we find our farmers are doing the same. And I was mentioning there's a wonderful goat cheese uh, maker. We, it's the best goat cheese, we think, in the world. I read about well, that. Uh, Monterey Chef. And she has a little tent set up at her farm, and you can just go there and, you know, put some money in the cash still and bring some cheese home. So, you know, they're, they're <laughs> Is she the one who's downsizing, though? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Susan, yes. Susan, yeah, yeah. You know, she says she's 70, she's downsizing. But one of the things that we um, heard from farmers over and over, and again, one of the reasons we wrote the book, um, because we didn't feel that people really understood or appreciated what it took to be a farmer. What we'd say, you know, what, what, do you, what are the skills that you need to be a farmer? And across the board, every single farmer that we spoke to said the same thing which is you have to be literally a master of everything, yes. whether, it's, whether it's business, whether it's agriculture, um, whether it's marketing, uh, whether it's, you know, person, whatever it is. I mean, you are a one-stop shop for Fixing so machinery. <laughs> machinery, you name it, especially if, you, yeah. again, you're small, you figure it out yourself. Yeah. And uh, one, of our, one of the farmers, actually a little bit larger farm that we um, interviewed, actually said, and I quote this all the time, that, who are the heroes? And when we talk about you know food and local food and everything, the, I mean the farmers are such heroes um, because of what they have to do. And we see this in this pivot right now to try to cope with the crisis right now. But an amusing story about how farmers have to be uh, masters of pretty much every trade. There's a wonderful farm we we uh, profiled called uh, Hawkdance Farm, and um, and they're. They're, they're, they have a little farm stand going right now. They're selling flat leaf parsley. Their CSA is going. And Elisa may tell you a little more about it. But we, what do they use to dry their greens? They, they, they took a, an old dryer, like a clothes dryer, <laughs> and a commercial dryer, and they fixed it up to become a greens dryer. And, you know, talk about, you know, just being handy. Well, they're very creative, and it's, it's interesting yeah, because you never right. think of that when you no. think of it as such an old profession, yeah, exactly. occupation. Yeah. I, I was going to mention something just about sort of this is a segue into the, the, the food um, part of the book because this is a cookbook, and it's, um, it's really two books. It's a story of, of small family farms, and it's, and it's a cookbook that highlights um, the ingredients, uh, the product. Yes, I was going to ask you how you decided. Well, two things. One, um, I'm, I'm, as I'm reading the book, I'm picturing you wandering around all these back roads, and, and one farmer would lead you to another farmer so that the book kept going on and on and on, right? And, and the second thing is talk about how you organized it. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, great question. So uh, one of the reasons the book took a long time to do, aside from the fact that we have um, other, other uh, day jobs in life as well, um, was the fact that we, didn't, we literally couldn't stop. There's always another farmer. And I actually feel yes. personally guilty that we didn't get every single farmer of, what did we say, there are 500 farms or something in, in the well, Berkshires yeah. region? Yeah, uh, we needless to say missed um, uh, we, we missed a few, but um, so I was going to talk a little bit about how we how we came up with uh, the recipes and how these were organized. So the, the point of the, the cookbook um, is that we wanted to take what these farmers produced and showcase them in recipes, and recipes that aren't complicated. Um, I literally could point out one or two that are more complicated than others, but recipes that are truly accessible, um, that a home chef, home cook can 
can you know easily do, and where the value of the recipe is in the ingredient. It's the ingredient that shines. Well, yeah, I mean you're working with the best that produced. I mean it's all tasting better even before you start putting it together. Exactly. Now, while while certainly these recipes can be. Um, you know, uh, used um, year-round, um, when the best time to create or the best time to create, you know, uh, meals from certain recipes is when the ingredients that are featured in them are uh, are fresh. So, for example, right now, you know, terrific to do an asparagus recipe. It will make the recipe because asparagus is, is coming into season, for example. Yeah, I haven't got any of that yet. Um, I, you do have the, what is it that you have here that I, it came in one of my... Um, my little boxes. Kohlrabi. Kohlrabi. I had no idea what to do with it. Oh, one of my, my boxes was kohlrabi and, and more radishes that I never seen in my life. So, right. <laughs> so I put them together. We also have a so, huge, so got a huge bag of carrots. Well, we're happy to direct you to but what I was going to say is one of the and going back to when you talked about how to, how we organize this. So we initially thought we would ask uh, farmers um, for the recipes, and for the most part, what we found out is farmers are they don't cook. They can't. I mean, they yes, of course they cook. So they have to eat, but they're not they're not writing recipes. So what we did yeah. is we worked with a local chef who's very well na- known, named Brian Alberg, Chef Brian Alberg. Yeah, tell us about they, him. Sure. So uh, Chef Brian, who we've known for years, um, and is um, was the uh, executive chef of Red Lion Inn, which is a very famous inn around here, and mm-hmm. now works for the parent company of Red Lion, which is a local hospitality company. So Brian, we asked Brian to come up with recipes that were inspired by what the farmers produced. So the farmers weren't giving us the recipes. Um, farm-to-table chefs who, when the restaurants, did give us recipes, which we adapted for the book. But the farmers, would, we'd look at what the farmer uh, was growing or, or raising or whatever, and we would brainstorm about what what kind of recipe might be a good one that showcased that particular ingredient. And that's how the recipes were devised. So, They're all inspired by the farm. So, so let me give you an example because you mentioned kohlrabi. So yeah, we you have two kohlrabi recipes. Yeah, page 47, we have a wonderful kohlrabi slaw, which yeah. uh, Brian uh, created, Chef Brian created this recipe inspired by a, a, a beautiful farm in uh, Williamstown, Massachusetts called Caretaker Farm. And okay. it's a 35-acre sustainable farm. They have over 270 members of their CSA. And it's really a, um, it's just a, a treat to visit with Don and Bridget and their family who who run this farm and have really preserved um, a, this beautiful tract of land in uh, northern Massachusetts uh, and really benefiting the community with their CSA. They're, they're active now, even during the crisis. The CSA is, is, is in business. They're really feeding the community. And they, when we were visiting with them, uh, they mentioned they grow kohlrabi, and then uh, we said, whoa, uh, and asked Chef Brian to, to, to develop a recipe. So there, there's a lovely photo of it, and uh, we really enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I took one look at this, and uh, I mean, I've seen kohlrabi before, but I had no clue what yeah. to do with well, it. Well, there you go. We, we, we go. were there, too, and we were in the business. Uh, it's not like we yeah. were selling, you know, <laughs> But fortunately, mine was young because you, I didn't even consider You said that if it's young, you don't have to peel it. Well, I never even considered peeling it. I just chopped it all up, leaves and all, the stems. There's, 
there's another kohlrabi recipe, not to focus so much on kohlrabi. I think it's caretaker as well, Rob. Um, it was, hold on a second. Let me just take a really quick look and see if I can find it, because uh, I know we had another one. Um, oh, God. It was, sorry, I wish I would. Yeah, you, you, I saw really you had two recipes for kohlrabi. Yeah, I'm sure. Here's one is, is with bean chili. That was, thank you. You know what? That's you're, good. That's good. You're good. Um, yeah, that's good. <laughs> So, okay, so the derivation of that one, and this is actually a good example to mention to home chefs, and I'm sure something you've talked about on their show. So we're talking to um, uh, the the farmer. Um, Donna it, Bridget. Yeah, Donna Bridget of, of Caretaker Farm. And she mentioned that she wanted to make chili one night, and there was, a, I, I think, a recipe in a, one of the Moosewood books that she saw, for, she saw for chili, and she didn't have an ingredient. And so she thought, God, I wonder if I can put kohlrabi in it, because they grow kohlrabi. And so she threw kohlrabi in, um, which inspired the recipe that you'll see you'll see in our book, which is a really good chili recipe with kohlrabi. Yeah. But the point is, if you don't have kohlrabi, you can use broccoli stems, or you can sure. make up almost anything else. And one of the things that is so true when you're dealing with fresh food and local, you know, food that you've just gotten from from you know hours uh, ago being picked, is that the taste is so fantastic that you can. It's not that everything is fungible, but you can really switch ingredients off. Not that, and it's it's fairly easy to do. And I think chefs have to be aware. And of course, our farmers said this to us many times. Have to be aware, home chefs, that really recipes are a suggestion. They're a guide. You yeah. can mix them up. It won't be the end of the day. What's the worst thing that could happen? And you may end up with a spectacular dish, as the caretaker farms farmer. Yeah, does. Not, I mean, one of the so, things I think uh, to point out to listeners who who are approaching it from the point of view of, of uh, really interesting recipes. Well, there are a couple of things, that, but um, I mean, on on our farm, I mean, my grandmother, whose brother owned the farm, I mean, she was cooking for like thirty farmhands. And uh, she wasn't looking for create. She was looking to put the food on the table. Totally, of course. Yeah, but now you, these recipes that are in this book are more sophisticated than that. So that these, I mean, they're creative and more sophisticated. Yes, yes. I mean, they are, you know, created uh, by a chef. Um, But we really worked hard with Chef Ryan to have these recipes uh, be very accessible um, be relatively simple, as Lisa said. Most of them are, and to, just to highlight fresh ingredients. I mean, that's the whole point of it. We really yeah, want. We have a whole ton of beets, and I, you, you have beet latkes. Yeah, <laughs> he, my husband's the master of the latke. He would love this. <laughs> uh, beet latkes again. We can make you. We have rutabaga latkes. We have beet latkes. You can probably again move around different vegetables within your lockies and you'll have lockies or potato pancakes for those unfamiliar with that term um, and you'll have you know uh, great pancakes so again nobody has to be you know wedded um, to to any particular thing in terms of their um, uh, cooking you know I want to tell just one little story and this sort of suggests um, the, the direction that we wanted our cookbook to take so Brian created a recipe for chicken cacciatore um, and while we had uh, professional recipe testers test um, the recipes. One of my friends said to me, "Oh, can I test some of your recipes?" And I said, "Sure." I always, you know, more people the better. So she took the recipe, made the chicken cacciatore, called me back and said it was really good. She said, "But she won't want to quote a fancier recipe." 
And I went back. The only time I did this with Brian, I went back to Brian and said, Brian, could we work on maybe, quote, a fancier recipe? And Brian said to me, Elisa, you've missed the point of what we're all doing, which is we're highlight. We're not out for fancy recipes. We're out for accessible recipes whose value, whose glow, whose, whose you know, appeal is going to be because you've included some, some in, in this case, pretty basic ingredients, but the ingredients shine because the people have hopefully bought them as locally as possible. And, and of course, that's our message. Our message is really, if you, you want to summarize our, our book, our message is, frankly, buy local. You know, that's what we're all about. We want to support our local farms because local farms benefit our community. They help sustain the environment. And, frankly, the flavor of the, of the food they produce is just better. Right, because you know your family uh, has a background in farming, and we are so the major proponents of buying local. And everywhere we meet with folks and we talk about the book, that's the messaging. So let me ask you, what what path are we on with the, the for the future of small family farms? Yeah, um, yeah. Where are we heading with it? Um, yes. You know, there's so many different uh, perspectives on this. We see now that some of the large agribusinesses um, have serious challenges with, um, you know, with with, with getting open. products to the to the uh, to the consumer, with getting uh, the labor they need uh, to to you know to to harvest uh, the yeah, large well, meat. Processing where is the labor going to come from? Is another yeah, big the question. Labor the the yeah. large meat processing plants in the news today. Some of them are closing down because of the virus. And oh, that's and horrible. On. That yeah. We feel that many of the farmers that we've met and have spoken to and experts in the field believe that it's critical that we have this uh, network of family farms and smaller farmers in, in all of our communities to really sustain us in the future, to, to, to be that food source that we need. And though it's hard and it's challenging and it's not easy uh, to make a living, uh, they are, as I said, they're the, the, the folks that we know, um, they are they're getting through and they're very committed to this and they this is a passion for for i would say virtually all of them that we met it's yeah. not just a, a job and, and they're you know. very nimble you've got one farmer who's starting to grow cannabis <laughs> yeah. so yeah so he's, he's an interesting story yeah. because he was he was truly king of greens in this area and just loved growing every type of green possible. He, and yeah, especially um, arugula, which is my favorite yeah. thing. It was like right. a weed in my backyard. Which is one of the healthiest greens you can possibly grow. I um, love it. But he was one of the people, actually, who said something, and there were a number of farmers who said the same thing to follow up on what Rob just said. Um, they were very prescient about... Um, small family farms, uh, or small farms, um, most of them family farms, pressure in the way that they said, you know, at some point the big agribusiness, uh, or I should say the agribusiness uh, companies aren't going to make it or because of climate change we won't be able to truck from, you know, coast to coast or whatever. And their point was that small family farms are going to be the savior of our our ability to, to eat healthily because we will have to buy regionally because uh, it will be so difficult to get product from elsewhere. And well, we hey, we're experiencing it right now. I mean, the, the, you know, the, we're supposed to be um, uh, in isolation and we're supposed to – we need food. Um, the, the, uh, the big networks aren't able to come through. They're overwhelmed. 
Yeah. So the, the ones you get are the ones that are local. Totally. So we say, and your question, Anne, is, is, is an excellent question, and obviously it's something that we think about all the time, uh, is, you know, how do we, how do we support these uh, farmers, the small farmers? And we said, look, the farmers markets are, many of them actually have started to open, and we believe they will be open, um, you know, with social distancing, uh, but they will be open. And we can still, as we said, buy our uh, local foods either at the farms themselves. And to just ask your, I would urge your listeners to uh, do a little research on Facebook in, in their own communities um, and on the web to find out who's offering uh, pickup. Uh, also, there are many, um, uh, uh, you know, markets. Obviously, the, the food markets are open, and they are buying from these local farmers. Uh, and even the restaurants, as we hope they will all come back, um, and certainly many of them are offering takeout. So there are many ways we can. They're also selling farmer. actually product. I mean, they've they've become yeah. grocery stores in many yes, cases. Yes, 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 right. yes, exactly. Yeah. And, yes. and another reason to support um, local now is really it, it's sort of in a way uh, uh, a selfish reason for for our own well-being. The the, the farm that's selling directly to the consumer is handling that product far less. Um, a person can go, and we've seen this around here, can go, the customer can go pick up the, up the product. The people are being extremely good about, um, about food safety, social distancing, all of that. So um, you can be assured that it was or pretty much assured that you will be getting something that is not, go- not going to harm you. Um, and also, we all know that there's in stores there's less you know product um, availability, but you can find often locally um, things that you might not be able to find in the supermarket. Um, I just want to, it's all right, just go back to one thing you mentioned when you talk about the labor issue, and this is in regard to your question about the future of farms. One of the things that the farmers we spoke to said across the board was that for them the biggest issue, even for them, small farms, um, is finding labor, and and that 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 is one of the issues that will affect the ability of um, farmers, small family farms, to succeed. It's difficult, obviously, for the large farms or the the agribusiness, but it's also difficult for the small farms. And what the farms, as one farmer said to us, um, have to decide is do they want to be small enough where they really don't have to hire anybody else? They can really make it a family farm. And many of them have chosen to go this route, often with somebody on the farm working off-farm to bring in more income because you're talking about a very small farm. Or do they want to enlarge it a little bit and... uh, try to get labor. And of course, finding one or two people to, uh, to help is probably easier, of course, than talking about hundreds, although still not without its difficulties. So I do want to mention that because that is a factor for uh, farms being able to make it. I think you're correct. And the whole immigration policy thing is just is kind of mm-hmm. undercutting all of these farms. We, we, hope, that, we hope that this book is, is about an America that is growing Rather than an America that yes. is shrinking. Yes. Well, so the book. So the book, as we we and we 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 talk about, obviously it's the Berkshires. The book is centered in a this beautiful area that Elisa spoke about, filled with culture and beauty, natural beauty, hills and 
ponds, and certainly we hope your listeners will visit when we will have an opportunity to get out of Yeah, a lot of the farms, by the way, have tours and education programs because education, a lot of them, a, a lot of city people don't even know what a head no, of broccoli yeah, looks exactly. like. Yeah. I mean, I remember how everybody reacted when they saw the Brussels sprouts grew like little buds on them. <laughs> Nobody yeah. has an idea that Brussels sprouts. Totally, it's 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 yeah. it's really important to come. So we, you know, of course, we would hope that uh, your listeners would be intrigued and, and interested to come and visit this beautiful area, which is also filled with culture and farms. But at the same time, and we say, and actually, our website is called the Berkshires and Beyond dot com. It's Good to know. Is beyond the Berkshires, right? It's, it's the discussion yes. we've been having about the future of uh, small family farms. All right. Again, listeners, the Berkshires Farm Table Cookbook, and we have the uh, builders, uh, Lisa and Robert, um, writing this along with Chef Brian Alberg. And uh, you're going to love it. Well, you know, I guess we have had a lot of repeat interviews or people re-interviewed. And uh, I think after a while, I mean, we've been doing this. We're in our 17th year of this podcast. Uh, so I guess we're, we're going to be running into old acquaintances and, and the creative people who do more than one project or one book or one whatever, you know. So uh, I guess that's all we want to say. We're going to wrap it up yeah, today. <laughs> You're looking for strangely. You, you, you puzzle, this you happens puzzle. if you've been locked up for three or four yeah, you, weeks. <laughs> you, you puzzled me there. I thought you were. Yeah, no, I'm I thought you were, I've I thought, lost it. I thought you were in four another, weeks is a long time. I thought you were in another part of the program. Another part of the world. <laughs> but, I, but I promise you, listeners, I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it sorted between now and next time, and we'll. Jo- we hope you'll join us then. Uh, And until then, bye-bye.